The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Isaiah chapter 56, going to look at the last couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 56, and then we are going to look to the entirety of chapter 57 tonight, uh, 21 verses in chapter 57. Uh, you may be familiar with the expression, no rest for the weary. I know you've probably heard that uh, expression before. It's commonly used even in our day and age for a person that's really, really busy and unable in their busyness to ever find rest. Uh, just a continuation of busyness, and it seems like our lives often, especially if you got young kids and going from one activity to another to another. What you may not realize is that Satan, that saying is actually an evolution of a biblical verse. It, it is found in the end of chapter 57, in verse 21, and what the biblical expression actually is that that state, statement evolved from is taken on, it's taken on a whole different meaning. There's no rest for the weary, that in busyness there's just much more busyness. The, the original expression, how it started, is actually coming from verse 21 of chapter 57, which says, there is no peace for the wicked. And as it's been Americanized, and even in, in England, from what I read, they still sometimes use that expression, there's no rest for the wicked, and they even mean it as busyness. And somehow along the ages, it got construed into what it is today. Originally, though, the biblical principle, the biblical truth, recorded here in verse 21 and prior in the book of Isaiah as well, it's repeated also is, there is no peace for the wicked. What is peace? It is rest to some degree, but it's a lot more than just rest. And really, it's a lot more than what we think of in the English concept of the term peace. What the word in Hebrew is, is shalom. And maybe that brings a deeper level of meaning to your understanding because you know that word shalom and what it means in Hebrew. It means a lot more than what we think of when we think of peace being the absence of conflict. And so when we think of peace, we think, well, goodness, we're at peace, a time of peace right now, meaning we're not in war. And so it's just the absence of war, the absence of conflict, the absence of bad things. Shalom in Hebrew, peace in Hebrew, means far more than that. It's more than just a term stressing the negative of something. It's actually a very strong word stressing the positive of something, the wholeness, the wellness of a good life, of a, a life of contentment and purpose and satisfaction and blessing, most of all in relation to God Almighty. It's almost what modern psychology, if you've ever been to anything with modern psychology and you know workplace psychologists that try to keep up the, the wholeness of the person and the well-being of your you know, individuality and all of these steps to achieving wholeness in your life and the, the thing that, that modern psychology tries to promise but can never bring a person to. Uh, it tries all of these different ways to bring wholeness and well-being in your life. That is what the word shalom means in its fullness. It, it, it means a life of well-being, a life of, of wholeness. And what God is saying here is true then, as much as it is true now, that there is no peace. There is no earthly satisfaction and joy and contentment and wellness and, and whole being. There is no peace for 
the wicked. For those that are living a life that's not in obedience to the Lord. For those that are enjoying the pleasures of sin that last for a season. There's a pleasure in it for a moment, but my goodness, the consequences come and they wreck a life. And there's no peace in such a life. It is a truth from God's Word that is evidenced all around us in culture, and if we're honest in your life and in my life too, it's evidenced all often in our lives that there is no peace for the wicked. That when we enter into sin, turmoil comes and a lack of what we think sin will give us, the enjoyment and satisfaction that we think is going to come to us by seeking to do it our way, even though we know it's contrary to God's way. Uh, what you find in the end, it doesn't give doesn't give what you think it will. A person that leaves his wife for another woman, the pleasure of sin for a season, but in the end, it's it's not not giving what you think it will. Uh, the you go down the list of sins, you pick on them all, and they're all true. There's no rest, there's no peace for the wicked. This passage we're going to look to that concludes with this verse leading up to it, going all the way back to chapter 56 and verse 9, we're going to see is a repetition of the themes that Isaiah has hit on over and over and over and over and over again. And it's actually a repetition of the the themes that I would even preach today in the gospel over and over and over and over again. They are large Um, teaching truths of the Scripture that are especially given here through Isaiah to the people of God and their waywardness against God. And that is the subject of sin, of judgment, and then of grace from God. Of of sin, uh, a right accusation, announcement, proclamation of the sins of the people, and then a proclamation of judgment, because of their sins and their waywardness. But then God, in a way that is undeserved of His grace and mercy, extends again an opportunity for repentance to be found and for blessing to actually come upon the sinner. And that, that, that's the message even of the Gospel. That, that parallels even what we're going to read here, written some you know, 3,000 almost years ago, 2,500 years ago. A little bit longer than that, actually, if I'm thinking right here in front of you. Right before the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah is writing to the people of God who had long lived now, generation after generation, in sin against God. They had turned to worship idols. They had turned to immorality. They had turned to a complete rejection of the the law of God that He had given and His covenant to them. They had embraced a life a style of life identical to the pagan peoples around them. And God had sent messengers, the prophets, to them, and they were ignored. And God had even done miracles through many of these prophets in their, in their, their, their sight. And yet, there, there might have been, like under Josiah, short seasons of revival, of a turning back to God. But ultimately, they, they continued down that wayward path of stubborn rebellion against God Almighty. And so Isaiah is writing a message to them saying, listen, the judgment of God is coming upon you. God sees your sin and He's displeased with it. And judgment will come. And He's actually bringing this judgment as a way to wake you up from, to the sinfulness of sin. And my goodness, doesn't that parallel all, our, all of our lives today? That 
you realize like every suffering and pain that God lets us walk through is in a way it's because of sin. It's a consequence of sin, even the sin of Adam in the garden. And you know why God made the consequences of sin? In order to wake us up to the sinfulness of sin. We die. We suffer. We go through pain and agony that, that God gives to us in His grace, actually, that we may be awakened to how much we need Him, just how messed up we are and how messed up this world is, and an ultimate goal in the grace of God that He extends the possibility of redemption, of salvation, of forgiveness. If only we repent and turn and believe in humility and in contrition, which is what we'll talk about at the end. And so the message that God gives through Isaiah to His people once again in this warning that we're going to look to tonight is also a message to us tonight. It parallels the gracious God who has a heart for sinners, who provides a way for their redemption. But He will by no means clear the guilty. He, he, he will punish sinners. He will punish sin. The goodness, the grace of God that He gives that provides a way for the sinner to find atonement, for the sinner to find forgiveness, for the sinner to actually find a, a blessing of God. All of that is given here to His people then. And all of this, I, I want us to see tonight as we walk through this passage, it parallels so well, especially the description of the, the sin of, of Israel in this day, so well the culture around us. And if we're honest, in part, it describes even our sins individually. And so don't think this is... God's Word to the people then that has no application to us as we walk through it. I, I hope it doesn't bore you tonight as we think once again of the sinfulness of man, of the judgment of God upon us because of our sin, and of the grace of God that He gave to His people then, and, and even a prophetic way pointing to the grace He gives now through Jesus. I hope it doesn't bore you. I hope you are reminded, those who know this grace, of the grace in which you stand tonight, I pray more than anything, maybe you're here and this isn't new and repetitive to you because you haven't been here. And you haven't been walking through God's Word or through the book of Isaiah. Goodness, my hope, my prayer is you come to see the sinfulness of your sin. You come to fear the judgment of God that's on you because of your sin. But more than all, you come to see the grace of God that's there if you'll only turn, if you'll only receive it tonight. So let's walk through those headings as we walk through this passage verse by verse. I don't want to read it all up front because it is lengthy. We're going to just read it as we read it underneath these headings. So the first big theme of Scripture and of this passage is a pronouncement of sin. A pronouncement by God calling out the sinfulness of His people. He begins at the end of chapter 56 and verse 9 with the leadership of Israel, the prophets, the false prophets, and the priests that were overseeing all of Israel. And he says to them, All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. He compares them to wild animals, to lions and tigers and bears, oh my, who are out only to devour their prey. His watchmen are blind. The, the ones that should be the watchmen on the tower who are seeking, uh, looking and watching for the enemy to guard the people of God from, from the dangers and temptations, his watchmen are blind. They, they can't see their hand in front of their face, much less see rightly to guide and to direct the people of God. They are all ignorant. 
They don't know up from down spiritually anymore. They have been blinded by the deceitfulness of their sin and by their insatiable desire for gain. That they, they can't, they can't rightly lead the people anymore. They're all ignorant. They are dumb dogs. Now I'd get on to my kid. He said, "This a, a person's a dumb dog." Hey, wouldn't you get on to your kid or your grandkid? That's pretty crude, right? This is God's Word about the people of God, even the leadership of God's people. When they turn in their sin to their own selfish desires for their own selfish gain, they are all dumb dogs that cannot bark. So, so they can't see the danger and not seeing the danger. They have no voice that truly warns of anything because they're blind and they're ignorant and they don't even have a bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber, lazy, sleeping, not at the work God has called them to do. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds. They are shepherds who cannot understand. Their desires are never satisfied. They want power. They want prestige. They want the the power over the people. They want money. They, they are never satisfied. They never get enough. And though they are shepherds, they are shepherds who are not leading and guiding and guarding the sheep rightly. They all look to their own way. They're not interested in the well-being of their flock. They're, they're interested in their own well-being, even at the cost of their flock. Everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, and I'll bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. They're in the pleasures of this life in a wicked, immoral way. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. They have no fear of God. They have no fear of impending judgment. And they, in their ignorance, in their blindness, in their self-centeredness, enjoy the day with intoxicating drink and their laziness, and they just pretend like tomorrow will be just like today. We'll get up and we'll do what we do to take what we take from whoever we want. And, and tomorrow will be even more abundant than we are today. And little do they know there is a sovereign God who sees it all, whom they will stand accountable for. And I sometimes wonder at some preachers, especially televangelists, just to pick on the televangelists for a minute that you know of when you turn the TV on. And, and it's just a money-making racket. And some people that get so conned by that into receiving supposed blessings and prayer requests answered, and, and all it is are charlatans using the gospel for monetary sake. As bad as it is now, in some regard, it was worse in this day and age. He turns in verse 1 of 57 from the sins of the leadership of Israel to the sins of the people, the idolatry that all had turned to. He says, the righteous, the righteous, righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He, the righteous, shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. You say, well, what is he speaking of here? He's speaking of God in that day in Israel's history removing the righteous, 
even, this is interesting, even removing them through their death from the evil of the world that it was turning into, from even God's people, and the impending judgment that was going to come upon Israel with the Babylonian captivity, when the Babylonians were going to come into Jerusalem and slaughter everybody and just lay flat all the buildings and the temple and carry out the gold and take those that survived back into Babylon to be captive, to be slaves, brutally, brutally beating them and the worst of actions committed as that occurs. That God is actually, He says here, He has removed some men even by death. The merciful, the righteous are taken away. And He says the, the society, the culture, never even notices the absence of the righteous men, the righteous women, the righteous families that were removed from that culture as wickedness prevailed and as the judgment of God was impending. And he, he makes a promise or just a truth about the, or about the righteous. Even when they die, he says, they enter into peace. And for those that know God, who have the peace of God in the here and now, a greater peace comes in our passing. There is a greater rest that is for the people of God. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But the main point here against the sins of Israel is they never even noticed the absence of these righteous people. The, the culture had become so wicked and so perverse that, that their absence, their departure, their death wasn't even a cause of grief. It, it would be even a cause of celebration or something that even goes by completely unnoticed. I was thankful, at least, that our culture recognized the passing of Billy Graham. And there was some mentioning of it. But there were some that celebrated in the mockery. But I look at our culture today, and even upon the Christian evangelical scene, and I, I think, like, where is the Billy Graham? Where, where is the Adrian Rogers? Where is the W.A. Criswell? Where is the, the preacher who is speaking a prophetic voice into the culture and society? And there are some men, thank God, who are preaching, but the culture doesn't elevate that person anymore. The culture does not want to hear that man anymore. There is no remembrance of the righteous. And even churches that stand rightly upon the truth of God's Word are now slung in the media as bigoted and archaic and narrow-minded. First Baptist Jacksonville right now. culture at large is turning very much into the culture of Israel before the captivity. But for the righteous, God's merciful. For the righteous, there is peace. Go back a few verses, a few chapters. You know, those who trust in the Lord, God gives to them a perfect peace. There's a peace that God gives. And even in death, there's a gracious act to remove His righteous people from the judgment that will come. Verse 3. But come here, you sons of sorceries. Sorcerer. I can't say the word right now. Sorceress. There we go. The female version of the sorcerer. Those that turn to witchcraft. I say, well, that's just Harry Potter and Hocus Pocus and his fake fairy tale, mythical, whatever. Now, there is a genuine worship of Satan. There are witches and there are sorcerers and sorceresses. Sorceresses, I think I said that right. Arrestesses. And, and they are genuinely against God. And they are genuinely using satanic power to accomplish what they deem best in, in their own little lives. And Israel had turned to 
even that darkness, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Now that's not literally speaking of the offspring of the adulterer and harlot. It's it's related to God as the husband of Israel. They've turned against their God and they have committed adultery against the one true living God whom they were in a covenant relationship with, even turned into the harlot who is selling herself out to to gain from the pagan gods that were all around them. He says, whom do you ridicule? They mocked the righteous. Who are you ridiculing? Against whom do you make wide your mouth and stick out the tongue? I found this a bit humorous. Like, that must be a universal symbol for mockery when we stick your tongue out and make wide your mouth. That's the picture given here. Just like a little kid would, would pull his mouth wide and stick his tongue out in mockery of something or being silly. Here it's speaking of the mockery they were making of God and of the people that were rightly following the Lord, the few that remained. And, and God is saying, who do you think you're making fun of and your mockery? You offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, the idolatry of the people around them to seek through these idols that they can manipulate and have control over the things that they most desire in life. And listen to this, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Israel had gotten to such a place of pagan cultic worship but they had even embraced, embraced child sacrifice in order to gain the pleasure of the gods that would give them their desires, give them their blessings they sought in life. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. Those smooth stones of the stream, I read, were used in a lot of the pagan cultic worship. They were believed to be unique and special because of the way they had been smoothed by the water that was flowing over them and and even the representation of the gods to some degree. And that was where they would put their wine offerings and their their wheat offerings. They they are your lot. You can have your little rocks. See what they're going to do to save you. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have offered a gain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? God is saying, should I take pleasure in the waywardness of my people as they turn to wickedness and sorcery and idolatry when God alone is the one true living God? It says, on a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Those high places of worship to the pagan gods that Israel never tore down. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them and you have enlarged your bed and made a a covenant with them. You've turned to all the things of this world to seek from this world and the idols of this world what God has promised to give to His people. It says you have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. It's a nasty thing when you turn from God to worship the idols of this life. Verse 9, you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off even and even descended to Sheol. You're acting like you have gone down even to hell itself and the dissension of your ways and the life that you are currently living, of waywardness, of sin. Verse 10, pay attention to this one. Mark it if you mark it in your Bible. 
You were wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. God's Word is saying there about their sinfulness is that even though their sin made them miserable, as sin always does, they, they didn't in their misery of sin come to a place of repentance and turning to God. Instead, in the misery of their sin, they just dug their heels in all the more. Instead of doing what was right and fitting and acknowledging their sin before God and repenting and turning to Him, they became all the more determined to say, No, I can do it my way. Who are you to tell me what I'm to believe? Who are you to tell me this is right or wrong? I am the captain of my life. I will sail my ship however, whenever, as long as I want. I'm going to do it my way. Does that sound familiar? did not say there is no hope in all this mess I'm doing. You wouldn't confess your sin. Instead, in the deceitfulness of sin, you just dug a deeper hole and in stubbornness continued an even more wayward path against God. You were never grieved over your sin. There was never conviction because of your stubborn, wayward, hard-heartedness. Verse 11, And of whom... Have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me? They were driven by a fear of man that led them to turn from God to worship the things of man, the the gods of the nations around them. Not taken it to your heart. Is it not because I have held my peace from old that you do not fear me? God is telling His people, is it not because I've been patient with you and I've, I've held... I've, I've held my peace. He's saying, is it not because I haven't poured out the judgment that's rightly due upon you that you continue down this pathway? And that leads us to the second heading for our verses tonight, a warning of judgment that comes in these next two verses. God says, I will declare your righteousness, your false righteousness, and your works. He's saying, I'm going to make obvious the things that you've done and the things that you're doing. I am going to bring the waywardness of your actions to to the surface. I'm going to shine the light on the darkness where it's all going to be seen. And he says, for they will not profit you when you cry out, let your collections of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. The Babylonians are coming in. And they will lay waste to your city, and they will kill many of your friends and family. And if you survive, they will lead you back as a slave into the land of Babylon. Judgment is coming because of your sin, because you have embraced all of these idols and wickedness and immoralities and child sacrifice even. God has stepped God has been back watching for all the while and in His grace and patience giving opportunity for repentance to come apart from this grand act of judgment. And He says, no, the time is coming. Judgment will fall. That's the message of Isaiah for the people. Judgment's coming. That's where it ended. Doom, gloom. We'd be in trouble. But that's not where it ends. Third heading, an offer of grace. Even after that very harsh announcement of their sin, 
and that very firm promise of judgment, God gives an opportunity for repentance. But he, the end of verse 13, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. That even through it all, through the judgment that would come, there would be an act of restoration. There would be a return to the promised land. There would be a greater, even a greater promise fulfilled through the Messiah. He who trusts in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. That's dealing with the idolatry of the land. He's saying, get get it up, get the sin up, confess the sin, and get it out of the way to, to truly return to God rightly. For thus says the high and lofty one, Not the one who resides on the mountaintops where you build these little temples and your false worship to these false idols, but the true one who is the high and the lofty one who inhabits eternity. (laughs) The one who was before all and who will be after all. The one who spoke everything that is into being. The one that even formed you in your mother's womb. The one who is deserving of your worship even tonight. This is the God who is speaking. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is separate from sinners. He's separate from sin. He is the one true, holy, living God. And He is speaking now even to His sinful, hard-hearted people a proclamation of judgment that is to come, but a promise of redemption, of restoration to who? To any and all who turn and in humility and in the brokenness of their sin come to God. Listen to what this high and lofty one, the holy God who inhabits eternity, says. I dwell in the high and holy place. With who? With him who has a contrite and humble To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The the ones who humbly acknowledge their waywardness. The ones who come to see their sin for what it is. The sin against the one true holy God. And the ones who under the, the weight of that sin come with humility to God and with a contrite heart. That's something we don't talk about enough. Contrition. It means remorse for your sins. It means a a penitence. Not that you pay something for your sins, but an acknowledgement that I'm a sinner coming into the presence of holy God who should squash me because of my sin. That there's a humility in it. There's a brokenness in it. There's a contrition in it. That the true worshipers of God do not come to God in arrogance. They do not come to God in their righteousness as if they deserve to be in the presence of the Lord. There are none before God who are there in their arrogance because of who they are and their righteousness because of their works. Only ones before this holy God, the one who has us in eternity, who says, I dwell in the presence of those who have a contrite and humble spirit. Those who have confessed the sinfulness of their sin. Those who have turned from that and turned to the God of gracious mercy who forgives. 
a humble and a contrite heart. Those are the true offerings to God that He will not despise, that He will not turn away. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would fail before me in the souls which I have made. He says, if I continued in my wrath against sinners without grace, all would be annihilated. None would, none would make it. None would survive. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. Speaking of Israel and the path of their sin and waywardness, as God removed his hand of blessing, they didn't turn to seek him. They actually turned even harder to their covetous ways. And he says, I'm now going to act in judgment upon them. I have seen his ways, and through this judgment, God says, I will actually heal him, verse 18. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. He says, I create the fruit of the lips the praise of the, off the lips to the people of God. God is the one who leads us in His loving kindness to repentance. Peace, peace to Him who is far off and to Him who is near. Prophetic word even of God drawing in the nations there. And those that are far from God becoming near to God as well those, as those who were near to God being drawn near to God. Say, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Many and all who come to Him find this healing. But the wicked, those that remain in their sins, those that remain hard-hearted are like the troubled sea. Think of that ocean in the midst of a storm with the waves that are tossed everywhere and crashing against itself and just the turmoil of that. There is no rest in that. There is no peace. That's what the wicked are like. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast mire, cast up mire and dirt, even that, that soil on the bottom being stirred up and, and just the mess of the dirtiness of, of, a, of, a, of a sea, a troubled sea. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Look around right now and I see a lot of people. Many of you, I know, have come to a place of acknowledging the sinfulness of your sin. You know that what this speaks of isn't just true of Israel and their sin. You know that was you, and it is you to some degree, that there is a part of you that has fallen and is sinful and is unworthy of anything before God, worthy of condemnation before God. And you know there's a judgment of God that's impending upon the sinner that Jesus spoke of it often, a place where the worm doesn't die and the, quiet, uh, the fire is never quenched. It's a place of, of uh, described in Revelation, the eternal place of a lake of fire. There is a place where sinners will pay for their sin. There is a judgment of God upon us because of our waywardness, because of our sin that is coming. But, but many of you, thank the Lord, have come to know the grace of God. You've turned from your sin. You've confessed it. That's what it means. Confession is to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. To recognize that it is sin against the high and lofty one, the holy God who inhabits eternity. 
And there was a time in your life where you you heard about the sinfulness of sin, and you heard about the God who you've sinned against, the one true living God, and you've understood the weight of that sin means eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. And, and thank the Lord you also heard about the loving, gracious acts of this God that this is even prophetically pointing to, where God would send His only begotten Son to die upon a cross for the sins of the world. The blood of Christ would provide a means in which sinful man can be reconciled to the high and lofty one, the holy God who inhabits eternity. And how does sinful man appropriate to himself the atoning work of Jesus? How is it that we come under the blood of Christ? The just shall live by faith. You only come to faith through a humble and a contrite heart. Humbly acknowledging your sin before God and the brokenness of your sin, and then contrition and penance and, and a remorse of that sin, confessing it before the Lord and saying, God, I'm a sinner in need of salvation, and I thank you by your grace and mercy. You sent Christ to die upon a cross for me. You shed his blood that I could be forgiven. And so I confess my sin and believe upon you as Lord and the Savior. Believe that you sent your Son to die upon a cross for me, and he was buried and he was raised again. Salvation, I said last week, has always been by grace through faith. It was the message then looking forward to the work of Christ. It is the message now looking back to the work of Christ. And if you're here tonight, I hope you're not walking in the place thinking, I'm here because of me. I'm here because of who I am. And there's a danger as we walk with the Lord for a long while. Some of you saved a long while ago that you start to get accustomed to grace. You get accustomed to the Word of God and to the people of God. And we can, we can dangerously fall into that temptation of thinking, I'm here because I've earned my seat at the table. And it's a good reminder, no, no, we're not. We're only here by the grace of God. The grace of God that saves sinners like you and like me. And I find it a good practice every time I walk into this building just pray a prayer under my breath and I ask you to say the same thing the prayer of a tax collector not the prayer of a Pharisee but you just walk in and you go Lord be merciful to me a sinner and there's a humbling nature to the confession of the reality that we are all sinners unworthy of who God is and it's a good practice for us all every time we come to worship to do that don't walk in if you're God's specially anointed, appointed spokesperson over the church to tell everybody what they ought to do and where they ought to be, you walk in and you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you worship the Lord in humility and in contrition. It's the true heart of a true worshiper before God. And if you're here tonight and you have never, never owned up to the sinfulness of your sin, God, you being here tonight is a gracious act of God. You hearing His Word read and proclaimed to you is a gracious act of God. And He's giving you opportunity even now to turn. And do what Israel never did until, until great judgment came. Tonight you have the opportunity to confess your sins before God Almighty and to turn to Him in repentance and contrition and believe upon Him as as Lord and Savior. Believe upon His Son, Jesus Christ. Believe upon what God did for you at Calvary to save you from your sins. And you, you just simply confess your sinfulness and you, you believe upon the work He did for you. And what you'll find is that God 
is not a God who delights in the destruction of the sinner, but that the sinner turn from his ways and, and lives and finds life. God delights in the forgiveness of sinners. He, he takes joy when a person comes on up to what they are and turns to Him to fix what they are. You're not okay tonight in your sin. You're not perfectly human, as a contemporary Christian song says. You are perfectly loved, but you're not perfectly human. You, you, Adam in his original condition was perfectly human. You are scarred and marred by sin and messed up and broken, and you're in need of salvation tonight. If you've never come to Christ, and so I beg you, recognize the sinfulness of your sin and this invitation. And simply turn to God and pray that sinner's prayer of repentance and faith. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I know you gave Jesus to die upon the cross for me. I know he was buried and raised again that third day. And he lives right now interceding for me before your presence. And so because of him, Lord, I beg you, save me. And the promise of God's word. Not only that He does, but He does so joyfully. He doesn't do so reluctantly or grudgingly. Oh, another sinner has repented of. I guess I've got to forgive him. Jesus died on the cross for them. No, it's the joy of His heart. His much rejoicing in the presence of the angels. And one sinner thank you for your grace and mercy that you, the high and lofty one, the holy eternal God, loved us enough to provide a way for us and our sin and our brokenness to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to you, to be healed. Lord, what a what an act of love and grace and mercy you've given through Christ. Lord, I pray tonight that all of us are reminded of that grace in which we stand. I pray tonight that all of us even leave here with humble and contrite hearts. I pray we live that way in humility before You and graciousness to others because of the grace that we've been given. But Lord, I pray more than all that if there's one here who's never come to receive that grace, that tonight they would. That even as Pastor Scott sings the song in a moment, that they would just simply bow their heads and pray to You confess their sin and believe upon Jesus as Lord and Savior and call out to you and ask, ask Lord, save, save me because of a sinner. And Lord, I know you will because you've promised you will. But Lord, we ask tonight, save the lost for Jesus' name's sake. We pray it in his name.